0: this is island waves you're listening to something to talk about a series on everyday people and giving them a voice into their lives island waves the voice of prince edward is Island Waves and you're listening to something to talk about and we're here today with musician, author, playwright, director and multi-level activist Mr. Glenn Hilkey. Glad to have you along with us today, Glenn. When we last left off, Glenn, you had journeyed from the states into Canada, got married, had a child and were about to embark on a move to Kamloops, BC. So let's circle back around a little bit and see how we got there. And then next foot in front of the other forward.
1: And so we moved to Kamloops in 2012. So I would say back in roughly 2010, 2011, when Julian was six, seven years old, he was completely into dinosaurs, paleontology, like, Uh, everything this kid was he was just amazing in terms of what he could retain and remember as far as names and eras and the names of those eras and behaviors of dinosaurs and so on and so my wife had been hired through a series of Skype interviews for her job that she still does here in Kamloops which is um, she's CEO of the Royal Inland Hospital Foundation And so she had to start her job. July of 2012, uh, we weren't, Julian and I weren't ready to move yet. We had two dogs as well and a house in Montreal, and there was a lot to figure out. During that period of time where we were getting ready to make the transition to Kamloops, he and I, Julian proposed an idea to me. He said, Dad, why don't we get an RV and drive across the country with the dogs and visit all of the dinosaur museums and paleontological sites in Canada and the US along the border. And I was like, okay, sure, why not? It sounds like a great homeschooling experience. And so that's what we did. I found an RV on Kijiji for like 1800. I was 30 years old, got it checked out, went to a local print store and got a bunch of huge dinosaur decals and and texts lapped it on the RV and the what we call the Jurassic tour bus took off from Montreal and three weeks later we arrived in Kamloops crisscrossing the border many times visiting these incredible paleontological sites in both Canada and the U.S.
0: Yeah. And this was in 2012.
1: I was in 2012. Yeah.
0: I'm missing something here. How did you, how did Kamloops become a destination, or was that just part of the cross country trek you were doing?
1: No. So Kamloops became the destination because that's where, that's where Heidi landed a job. So Heidi had been working in Montreal. She was actually working at a foundation in Montreal at the time, and we had both been talking about wanting to change, right? Wanting to, a different place to live. In 2010, 2011, right to 2012, it was, it was like the last remnants of the old guard of the Parti Quebecois. They were still harping on, you know, English language and English language sign in Montreal. And like there were these like local vigil- language vigilantes that were out with their rulers, you know, measuring the size of letters on business signs in our neighborhood and other English neighborhoods and reporting them to the, uh, I can't remember what the name of the the government department was, but it was the one that policed everything linguistic. I can't remember what what it was called in French or English at this point, but it was basically a law that would quote unquote tolerate new immigrants and refugees in terms of what they would be allowed to do and wear and say and work and so on.
0: I do and, remember. You know that. what? Yes. I, yeah, I do and remember What frustrated that. what
1: frustrated us was that we we're both bilingual. We were very much immersed in in Montreal and Quebec society, francophone and anglophone, friends, work, colleagues, you name it, the arts. But there was so much corruption at the time. I mean, there were literally there were concrete overpasses on the highway that were collapsing onto cars and killing people due to organized crime and government corruption and there was just so many social issues that needed work on like poverty issues housing issues homelessness issues addiction so much stuff and you know what seemed to be the big priority for the government was like the size of english letters on signs They're just like oh, enough of this it's crazy had enough and so you know where to go was up in the air I had never been out west except once or twice when, when we visited friends in Vancouver. Heidi had never lived out west. The furthest west she ever lived was Ottawa. I had never lived anywhere but Montreal and, and obviously uh, in eastern Quebec. So it was just putting out some feelers. And so she applied for a couple of jobs in Vancouver and uh, one in Delta, B.C., not too far from Vancouver, And then the headhunter came back and said to her, the job in Delta was just taken by a person who was working as head of a foundation in Kamloops. Would you be interested in the job in Kamloops? We had never heard of Kamloops. We were like, what? Who? Like, where is that? Never heard of it. And so we did go to visit. Kamloops in early June of 2012, once Heidi was notified that she was the candidate that they wanted to offer the job to. And it was it was pretty shocking to find where we were going to be living, you know? It never We had never lived in a mid-sized Canadian city. And it's a small, mid-sized Canadian city campus of 100,000. You know, it's not like cities in Ontario, like London or Kitchener-Waterloo, that are in the hundreds of thousands. But we decided to give it a go. Yeah.
0: You're listening to Something to Talk About, and we'll be right back after this. in Ways. Something to Talk About is a series on everyday people and giving a voice into their lives. This series is dedicated to James David Withers, friend, mentor, author, and poet, and also to Shirley Eckhart, composer of our theme song, singer-songwriter, and namesake of our program, Something to Talk About. And we're back with Glenn Hilke. Uh, When we left off, you had made a drastic move. Uh, I think you were up in Vermont. Uh, You met Christiane. Am I saying her name right?
1: Christiane, yes. Christiane.
0: Mm -hmm. And you eventually found yourself in Montreal. And then from there, you went to...
1: Bay St. Paul. And so we moved to Kamloops in 2012. So
0: you and Julian proceeded heidi by taking the uh what did you call that the not the dinosaur tour the
1: the jurassic tour bus the jurassic
0: (laughs) tour bus so how did that how did that work out
1: oh it was a riot i mean we i had never participated in in rv culture whatsoever and so the first night we drove from montreal to uh an rv campground just outside of ottawa it was the first time it was the first night and the first time we were uh, pulling into a facility like that and it wasn't a great experience there were so many rules about being a an rv camper plus we had the dogs and you know you're like one rv next to another you know our neighbors were nice people but they were like professional rv campers we realized okay the rv campground experience is not going to be the one for us. For the rest of the, the trip across Canada, we just parked behind churches, uh, schools, ballparks. And we were in the in the most tiny rural communities because oddly enough, the majority of these incredible paleontology facilities and fossil digging programs are in tiny communities all along the border, both in Canada and the US. And so we were we were constantly crisscrossing the border to go from one to the other. And the, the the weird thing about my relationship with Julian, and this was true about with his mother as well, is that Julian, until he was in high school, he never referred to us as mom and dad. And he just called us by our first name. And, and uh, we were fine with that. Uh, we figured that he heard everybody else call us by our first names. And so why not him? And so, yeah, he would just refer to me as Glenn. We pull up to a a custom border crossing, and this happened only when we crossed into the States, not in Canada, not coming back into Canada. But inevitably, you know, this rickety, crazy looking RV would pull up, say uh, to me, you know, what's your name? What's the purpose of your trip? I would explain to him about the dinosaur uh, experience. Julian would be sitting in the other seat in the front, and he would look over to Julian and he'd say, and son, uh, who's this with you? And he'd say, oh, that's Glenn. And inevitably, they would say, okay, uh, pull over, please. They would interview us together, sometimes separately, to make sure that I wasn't kidnapping this kid, you know?
0: Your journey took you to Kamloops, and once you got there, did you you guys stay and wait for Heidi to come, or did you have to still go back to Montreal and... No,
1: no, we were Get, done. You were <laughs> done. We rented our house. We had a month of garage sales in Montreal. We took what we needed for our cross Canada trip with the dogs, and we arrived uh, Labor Day weekend uh, in Kamloops three weeks after of departing from Montreal.
0: Well, that's a nice uh, that that was that would be a nice cross country trip, and I guess it's yeah. You know, all in all, it must have made some good memories with your son. Oh yeah. For sure. I yeah. mean, you could probably write a book about that, or maybe he can.
1: <laughs> yeah, we have some, we have some good photos and videos of it as well. Yeah.
0: So you all reconvened as a family, and this is now again. Tell me, what year is it? Twenty twelve.
1: Twenty twelve. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been in Camloops ten years now. Yeah.
0: Okay, and so when you got there, what did you do? Did you continue to homeschool Julian? At that I did. Point?
1: Yeah, I did. I don't know if I in our earlier conversation. I told you the story of what happened shortly after I arrived in Kamloops and how it connects to what I do today. Did I tell you that story? You did
0: not. No. The only thing I was aware of is that there was a Jubilee Urban Movement and Partners Program. Is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's part of the story. So I got to go back to 1992 for a minute. Is that okay?
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: So... Open City Productions is getting underway, and the first program is that cabaret into the homeless shelters. And so the first night, we go into the Old Brewery Mission shelter, downtown Montreal, and we launch this cabaret and open mic. And in the course of the night, this gentleman who's homeless uh, says, can I... um, say something. And we say, sure, that's that's what this is, is about. It's the open mic. We're here to entertain, but mostly we'd love to hear what you guys have to say. So this man comes up to the microphone. He takes out his wallet. He pulls out this piece of paper that's been in there seemingly forever, unfolds it various times. And then he reads this most beautiful love poem to the his peers that he's living with in the shelter and gets a nice round of applause and we thank him, and he sits back down. Later on that night, he comes back and says, oh, um, can I come back uh, on stage again, and, and can I borrow his guitar? I'm like, sure. So he takes the guitar of this other artist that we invited to come perform. The guitar is for a right-handed guitarist, and he takes it, and he flips the guitar upside down. So now he's left-handed, and he's playing the guitar, and he's singing an original song in a voice that is reminiscent of Paul Robeson, like deep bass baritone voice. And so Harold is like the essence of what we had always hoped this this program would be, an opportunity for people who don't have access to the creative process, to resource, to express themselves and feel good about themselves and then be the artist that they are. Harold is originally from Grenada, he's six foot eight, He's got a big afro, tall, thin guy, and quite a friendly character. And the next thing we know is that Harold is following us from one shelter to another, right? He knows what our schedule is. He's interested. And he he wants to perform at all the different shelters, which he's doing. And he starts hanging out at our office. And you know, we got to know Harold. And we asked Harold, you know, do you would you like some help to like get out of the shelter? And we help him get a room in a rooming house and then get an apartment and then Harold has become a member of the team, and he's now a part-time worker, a full-time worker, and now he's running the program, this cabaret program. We see Harold, you know, pretty much five days a week, so to speak. For five years, I see Harold. One Thursday night, I say, good night, Harold. I'll see you tomorrow, in 1997, and I don't see Harold the next day, and I don't see him the day after, the week after, the month after. We put up missing persons reports to the police. We're calling hospitals. Cannot find Harold anywhere. And so this is where it gets really strange, Virginia. So two weeks after I moved to Kamloops, and I'm sure you know where this is going, I'm on my bicycle with Julian just a few blocks from my house. And as we're riding down just in our first bike ride to get to know Kamloops better, I see this man approaching, and I can't believe my eyes. It's Harold. It's, it's Harold. And 15 years have gone by, and Harold has put on a few pounds, and his big afro is now all white. And I get off my bike and I literally grab him by his jacket, and I'm saying, This cannot be real. Like, I just feel like I'm hallucinating. This is like I must be dreaming this. And Harold looks at me and he says, Hey, Glenn what took you so long to get here Good the response. first words out of his the first words out of his mouth he made his way across the country and wound up in kamloops and when i asked him why kamloops like why are you here he said oh i heard that the bc lottery commission headquarters was in kamloops and i thought oh that should be a a lucky place to live
0: that <laughs> so was <that's>, his, that <laughs> was his rationale for going to kamloops
1: <laughs> yeah we kind of just went like right back into our old relationship in Montreal, because I found out when I said, what the hell are you doing here? And he said, well, I work as a custodian at the library, and he had already been living in Kamloops 10 years when I met him in 2012. I work as a custodian in the library, and then on Saturdays, I make spaghetti suppers for the homeless, and I I serve it out of a parking lot.
0: Isn't that incredible?
1: Yeah. Plus he had been making coffee and sandwiches whenever he could and just distributing it. And so he, he was a known entity in the homeless community. I learned he had the nickname because of his big white Afro called him frosty frosty. Yeah. And I said, okay, I I, I'm curious to see what your spaghetti suppers look like. And so I went one Saturday night and I was hooked I started volunteering with him. The more we, work together on these Saturday nights over the next few months at the end of 2012, the more we started talking about, you know, how could we help this evolve, give it a little bit more dignity, you know, because people were just, you know, getting spaghetti and a piece of bread and a bottle of water in a, you know, in a clamshell styrofoam container, takeaway container with, you know, a plastic fork and uh, with nowhere to sit. And so over the next... 14, 15 months, he and I worked closely together, came up with a title. He he was referring to his work for those 10 years, he and, he and I learned that he had become very religious from a Christian perspective. He had referred to what he was doing as the Jubilee Street Ministry, and it wasn't incorporated or anything. It's just what he referred to, you know, in his humanitarian work. Yeah, we talked about, you know, forming a society and I told him, you know, I didn't like the religious street ministry part of things. And I I wasn't sure if it was going to be a good perspective for fundraising purposes. And so we kept the Jubilee, but we referred to it as Jubilee Urban because it was urban movement and partners. So movement meaning that, yeah, we wanted to create some kind of a movement of food security that would, you know, assist the poor and the homeless and that we needed partners to make it all happen. So that's where that's where the name came from and the acronym for that was JUMP. And that's how people referred to that, that project as JUMP, J-U-M-P.
0: Did that sort of lend itself eventually to the creation of the loop?
1: Yes, it did, yeah, yeah. And so just as Harold came into my life in 92 and disappeared in 97, and Harold comes back into my life in 2012, New Year's Eve, 2013, After, like I said, 14 or 15 months of Harold and I working together, I get an email from Harold on New Year's Eve saying, it's been fun working with you. Have a good time. I'm done. See you around.
0: And where did he go?
1: He's still here in Kamloops. And I bump into him from time to time. We don't like, we're not buddies. We don't like, you know, have coffee with any regularity. He's now still a custodian, but at the university here in Kamloops. He just pursues his own interest. He likes photography, and he likes writing. And I see him once in a while walking the streets of Kamloops, and that's it. Yeah, so, so what ha- you, Harold.
0: So what happened with Jump once he departed?
1: Jump continued, and continued right up into 2017. Yeah, and so what happened over the course of the years of 2016 and 2017, is while I was still the coordinator for JUMP, and JUMP was basically a food security program, much in the same way that the Loop is, it was working in various different facilities because it it was extremely hard to find a physical space that a landlord would agree to having a drop-in center for the homeless. That was just not something that landlords were... You know, dreaming of having as tenants, right? We had to move around to various locations until we did find a landlord. And at, during that time, at 2016, I took a contract with another organization, the Elizabeth Fry Society, that was doing some similar work like Jump, but was more focused on developing people with lived experience to take on more responsibility in the context of. Say a drop-in program, right? So as opposed to looking to hire people who were already human resource workers or social workers or so on, the idea was to operate a drop-in center, which this contract did a couple of three times a week for a few hours a day, and find a way to navigate and and get people that were dropping in to take on more responsibilities and then and then to get training and actually become the main the main staff and or volunteers that would make a, a drop-in function, right? Now,
0: you're talking it's, about the lived experience community?
1: Yeah, and so that's what it evolved into. So this this contract that I did, which was called the My Place program, evolved into what exists today, which is the lived experience community life and peer skills program. And so although the JUMP program had some of that already, peer work and peer participation. We What we did was we transitioned and closed down JUMP as a society and opened up a new society under that long name that I just mentioned with some of the people that were involved in JUMP and still are today with the new organization and new people that we came into contact with in 2018, 2018. 2017, 2018. You're talking
0: about the Peer Skills Program and Lived Experience Community Life.
1: That's correct. Uh, Is
0: that the umbrella company for the, or organization for the
1: loop? That's correct. Right. Exactly.
0: So that all evolved to uh, 2017, 2018 as kind of a... That uh, evolved,
1: yes, and and became an incorporated society at the end of March, 2019. And the reason that it got to that point of incorporation was because the elizabeth fry society that was the organization that i had this contract with to develop a peer-based drop-in program they were going through a complete overhaul of their organization a new board their mandate was primarily to work with women single women coming out of incarceration as well as single moms with kids to help them stabilize their lives through housing, employment, and so on. When they were reworking their whole organization, their board said, you know, we can't do this peer thing anymore, this drop-in center. We can't support that any longer. And they were just kind of supporting it on an administrative basis. I was doing all the fundraising for it. They said, sorry, you know, we got to cut you loose. And so I had to say to all the peers, you know, this is the situation, guys, like, I said, okay, so what are we gonna do? Like and how are we gonna do this? We literally don't have a, a dollar to our name right now because we were working kind of project to project, you know, with the the backing of a a recognized organization. And all of a sudden we are just like a a group of people without a name and without a home and without a project, so to speak. And so then something weird happened, Virginia. <laughs> In the the middle of March, like two weeks before our relationship with Elizabeth Fry is due to end, I get a phone call out of the blue from TD Bank saying, hi, uh, would you be interested in a visa card, a line of credit, and a uh, checking account with overdraft limit? And all of this amounted to like $40,000 worth of credit.
0: Now, wait, is that for you personally or for the organization? For you personally?
1: For me personally. Okay. Okay. And so, yeah, so you know where I'm going with this. So I said, sure, knowing that, okay, now we kind of had a financial base to work from.
0: Now, I have to ask you, was the organization incorporated as a nonprofit at this point or just formed as an organization with a name?
1: Yeah, it wasn't incorporated. But once I got that call from TD, I got right to work on incorporating.
0: As a nonprofit?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because earlier, you know, Prior to that incorporation, at the end of March 2019, we were working under the aegis, the administrative body of the Elizabeth Fry Society, as with their charitable status. And they basically were just the bookkeeper for whatever money I could bring in.
0: Yeah, you were under yep. their umbrella. Exactly. Right. So they actually did you a favor by giving you... Cutting us loose. By cutting you loose would be the right way to say it, yeah. It was uh, quite the impetus to, to form and regroup and then you got that offer which I guess was like a a hand from the sky I guess saying (laughs) hey you're doing the right thing and you're on the right road and now there's some financing for you now that you were doing this though on your own financial strength at the same time yeah but at the same time taking on a financial risk as well Mm -hmm. that's right and you were willing to do that you did do that Mm
1: -hmm. I didn't think twice about it honestly and the risk is still there. I just knew that if the if the right people were behind it and the passion was there, and we could find the time and energy, and the location, we would we would succeed. I had no idea how long it would take for that quote unquote success, and how long it would take to make the transition from you know the dependency uh, from my own personal stake in it but we're still in that process. What what are we talking about here? We started in April of 2019, so we're approaching year 4. 4.
0: Yes. You're listening to something to talk about and we'll be right back after this. Hey day children, this is Nana Anna. Be sure to tune in to Storytime with Nana Anna, where I'll be reading The Adventures of Koopa the Field Mouse, a dandy story written by local author Joan Doucette, right here on Island Waves. And you can get your very own copy of The Adventures of Koopa the Field Mouse at Barnes and Noble also on Amazon at your local home hardware, Twice Upon a Bookstore in Montague and Cooper's Red and White in beautiful downtown Belfast. So, get out and support your local author and tune in to Storytime with Nana Anna right here on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. Today's guest, Glenn Hilkey. And so, talk us through your organizational structure. So, so the the parent or the umbrella organization is Peer Skills Program and Lived Experience Community Life. Correct? Is that is that your yeah. Name? So
1: I'll re, I'll restate the long name. right? Okay. And the reason for the name is because uh, we wanted something that spoke to every aspect of what we believe the concept would be, in terms of programs to come, and, and, and ones that already existed, one that already existed, which was the drop-in concept. And we also wanted all the buzzwords we thought would enable us to attract funders or be eligible for, you know, government or foundation grants. So the full name for the society is Lived Experience Community Life and Peer Skills Program.
0: And you incorporated that and then as a nonprofit, and then did you get your charitable status as well?
1: We're, we have an application pending.
0: Tell us about the Loop.
1: Yeah, so in 2019, we had a temporary space that we operated out of three days a week that was a city-owned facility on the North Shore in Kamloops, which from the time I met Harold back in 2012, It just became my point of reference, geographical and community reference for Kamloops. And I'll speak about the North Shore downtown uh, dichotomy and, and, and just like chasm in the city later on. But the facility that we were working out of at the time, city owned, we wanted to be able to expand our services there and be more than three days a week and more than just three hours a day. But the city couldn't enable us to do that uh, because they had other people that rented that facility, other community groups and so on. It, It just wasn't compatible in terms of what we wanted and, and what they could what they could offer
0: what kind and of so facility we looking, was it glenn what's that can you describe what kind of facility it was was it like a storefront or a it building? was a community center oh
1: yeah it was okay. a city-owned community center and it was a very nice building but yeah but it was open to anyone in the community that wanted to use it right yes from a birthday party to a religious group to oh
0: you not know, not yeah. just exclusively for your group then no. Okay. No, I don't know. Yeah. A community outreach center, so to speak.
1: Yes, and our and our model was basically a, a place for people to drop in. So a social as an eating space, and as a place to learn about, and connect to resources that they might need. So it wasn't specific just to the homeless community, but I would say it was specific to people living in poverty or were not homeless, people with physical and mental health challenges and disabilities who were or were not homeless, or people with substance use challenges, that addictions that were homeless or not homeless. That was our demographic and still is our demographic.
0: Now, was that facility in the downtown core of Kamloops?
1: No, it was on the north shore of Kamloops. And Kamloops Kamloops is divided by two rivers, the North Thompson River and the South Thompson River, and they converge right in the heart of downtown Kamloops. And the North Shore has historically been, from what I've learned, the poorer part of Kamloops. It was the part of Kamloops that became more residential after the downtown. The North Shore of Kamloops was for up until maybe 40 or 50 years ago. The agricultural, especially in the way of uh, fruit orchards, was was designated for primarily for that kind of use. So now all those orchards are gone. and It's complete residential, including the airport, malls, and so on. But it still has a higher concentration of uh, people living check to check in poverty and there's a cohort of I would say roughly a hundred people that are homeless that just call the North Shore home and rarely will go downtown.
0: So the loop opened around August of twenty twenty. Are you still in that facility or have you had to find other means? Because I mean you guys had a rocky yeah, we're road still there. You're we're,
1: still there. Yeah we're still we're still in the in that facility and what happened was we had to search for a new location, once we knew that the city would not extend our hours, I had I had already started looking for a facility once we incorporated. And like I said earlier, to find a landlord who would just say, Oh, thank you very much. I've always dreamed of having a homeless drop-in center uh, as one of, as one of my tenants was impossible to find. And then one day I saw a rent sign go up on this building and I contacted the landlord and met with her, and literally five minutes into me explaining what I wanted to do, she said, I love it. I love it. I I can't wait to have you as tenants.
0: (laughs) Now, I was about to say that would be a rare find, but now you've proven me wrong. The
1: reason why she was so happy to have us was that not only as the owner of the building, but as a person operating a business for 10 years prior to us taking over the building, she ran what was called the Compassion Club in Kamloops. So pre-national marijuana, recreational marijuana laws in Canada, she ran a business where doctors that prescribed marijuana for their clients could come confer with her and get the right kind of marijuana for whatever was ailing them. And so she had a lot of people that were homeless that were poor that were had disabilities come to her location and these are still some of the same people that come to us today
0: so it was a natural progression for her uh, to find you needing space and she was amenable to facility being a or your organization being her tenant so that was handy. So we
1: rented we rented half the building from her. The whole building was available, but we couldn't afford the whole building. So we rented the part of the building that already had a small commercial kitchen, like stainless steel kitchen, a very, very small with a residential electric stove, which is what we still work with. So we're talking about we're talking about a kitchen area that's probably 150 square feet. And we rented that side of the building. That's where she used to use to to cook her marijuana lace brownies and gummies and things like that, where they did all their baking for their clients. So we took on the lease in, in November of 2019 for three years, and and she gave us a, a couple of months of free rent to do whatever renovations we could do, and we were not capable of doing any major renovations. Believe me, I'm not a jack-of-all-trades. I'm, I'm, I'm an urban non Jack of all trades kind of guy. The weirdest thing happened though, just before we were planning to open in early January, I called a friend of mine here in Kamloops. It was a contractor because we had just gotten a couple of commercial uh, industrial pieces of equipment, like a buffet unit, a place where you could keep soups warm, you know, that needed special plugs and so on. And I called him and I, and I said, can you come and check our electrical panel to see, if we have enough capacity so he came five minutes later he said yeah yeah you're all good and he starts looking around the building and he said to me like you know you know you only have one bathroom and I said yeah yeah I know I know but you know that's all there is and he said well why is there a wall there within minutes he says to me you really need to renovate this place like make it more conducive to what you're talking about doing and I said yeah I know Kevin I said but we don't have any money And he said, well, you don't have any government grants or anything. I said, Kevin, we got zero, zero dollars here. An hour later, he calls me and he says, if you let me do what I want to do, I'll bring in all my subcontractors and we'll do everything for free. And I was like, of course. Amazing. So from January to mid-March 2020, they do an incredible amount of work to fix the place up. And we're getting ready to launch. And guess what happens, Virginia? COVID.
0: COVID. Right. Oh, my goodness. Right. Yes. The and thing so that we wish we could forget about
1: everything shuts down
0: just as you're getting started.
1: Everything has to shut down. Like, yeah, businesses forget, forget homeless shelters like drop in centers, restaurants, everything's closed. And so the core group of our lived experience people. You know, many of whom I've known over the years through jump and so on, they come to me on my birthday, March twenty eighth, twenty twenty, and say, What are we gonna do? Like all of the meal programs are shut down, like the homeless have nowhere to go to eat. Like and I said, I don't know. I said, like, what are you thinking? What are we gonna do? So, well, we gotta cook food and bring it to them because they're all over the place. There's nowhere for them to go. I said, Where are we gonna cook this food? And they said, I don't know, your kitchen. On my birthday in 2020, we started the first loop program, which we called the Loops COVID Meal Train. So it's your basic Meals on Wheels program. Make the food, get it, in, get it in takeout containers, get it in the vehicle and drive around and say, hi, guys, everybody hungry, need a bite to eat or something to drink? And that's what we were doing.
0: Well, you raise an interesting point here that I know for myself haven't thought about and and that's with going through all of your your background uh with regard to these projects is what did happen to the homeless nobody seems to want to talk about that during covid so okay you you on they came there on your birthday you made the meals and now they're loaded up in the vans and you're bringing them around bringing them around where and to whom
1: that was the easy part virginia and i'm gonna i'm gonna draw a an analogy to a different era and a different environment in another corner of the globe which still exists today i just read an article in the new york times today about wild dogs living in chernobyl okay so where am i going with this the entire city of kamloops is shut down right nobody's driving except fire police right just first responder healthcare workers i could drive around kamloops any time of the day because there's no more rush hours. I could drive backwards all around campus. There was the only folks that you would eat were homeless people. And you could see them everywhere. They no longer had any restraints on them based on commercial businesses being open or what's the word I'm looking for loitering problems like sorry, you can't be here. You got to move along, you know, My barbershop is open. You can't hang out in front of the business. Everything was closed. So they were everywhere. Like they weren't just hiding in the lanes and the alleys like you would normally find them today. And so it was quite easy to find people. And so we started this program that was just a grassroots program launched on Facebook called the Kamloops COVID Meal Train. And the response from the community was overwhelmingly
0: supportive. That's wonderful. Yeah.
1: Everybody was home. Nobody was working. Everybody was like, hey, I'm making muffins anyway. You need sandwiches? How about a soup? You need food? You need a gas card? It was just unbelievable.
0: Now, was that through word of mouth or because the homes were so much more visible?
1: It was all Facebook and word of mouth and you can find you can find the the Facebook group it's still there it's called Kamloops COVID Meal Train
0: so now all right so we're you're feeding them you're identifying them but i guess what's still in my head is what happened to these homeless people for shelters because we were So in the COVID. shelters
1: can't close down by law people need shelter it's a constitutional right and so but the restrictions the protocol for getting into shelter, staying into shelter, the masks, they're not being forced to be tested, but yes, you can still get into shelter.
0: So Camloops does have existing shelters where people can get in I guess yeah, certain at, at hours time. of the day.
1: Yeah, at that time, and we're talking about, you know, beginning of April. So there is Camloops has only one shelter at that time. So Camloops has the equivalent of fifty beds for at that time, probably 200 people, for sure, that that were homeless, or 250 people that were homeless.
0: So, what happens with the other 150?
1: They're couch surfing, camping along the river. They're sleeping in bank lobbies. If they can cull together some money, they might rent a motel room for a few nights. You know, once they get their, you know, their monthly social assistance checks, they're all over the place.
0: So would you say that COVID had an impact on this sector of the community or, I mean, how...
1: oh, Big time, big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And still today, I mean, there's, there is, uh, you know, there's, there's people that are long haulers from COVID that are, you know, part of the homeless community. Those that died from COVID. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, COVID really attacked people with already existing immune deficiency disorders or already existing conditions especially you know ones that were respiratory
0: those are the ones that were most hit hard yes yeah Yeah, right didn't make it yeah so the loop is is a community outreach center but it's not a homeless shelter and I guess in looking through some of these um, notes that I have in front of me you seem to be having an uphill battle with the city Uh, Mm -hmm.
1: that's right for
0: example in May of 2021 you faced a series of fines for and I love this one excessive use of services you got a $3000 fine for excessive use of services what does that mean by definition is that even is that even a possibility i mean what do they mean by excessive use of service
1: yeah so i got to i got to put it into context why this would even the whole fining system you know the description of what are the basis for the fines so I have to I'm gonna put it to you in two different contexts. One is from a socioeconomic point of view, gentrification is happening on the North Shore rapidly. There is one particular real estate developer who has his offices just down the street from us, who is buying up properties all along the street. The main there's only one main commercial strip on the North Shore of Kamloops. It's called Tronkeel Road. So our address is 405 Tronkeel Road. So we are sitting on a piece of property on this main commercial strip that real estate developers want. And real estate developers are totally in bed with city councillors and senior bureaucrats that, that run our city. Their influence is deep, to say the least, in terms of city policy, how it's how it is brought forth for votes by city council and yeah so the, the you know the north shore is finally having its day in the gentrified sun and our building and our program is standing in the way of cleaning up the neighborhood
0: so optics so, are uh, uh the the issue here
1: optics that's the word, NIMBYs, that's the word. So, that, that, yeah, yeah optics and yeah.
0: nimbys not my backyard exactly so go somewhere else we don't care if you exist we won't oppose your existence uh we're going to pretend that you don't exist and we don't want you here because the optics aren't there funny enough was things improve and you probably serve to help improve that then they come back up to bite in the end when people see the opportunity to as you say gentrify a neighborhood and make money
1: right exactly
0: and unfortunately this isn't just you know for loops, I think this goes on. My goodness, I saw it go on when I worked for the Model Cities projects back, back when we were just out of high school.
1: It's, it's always the same story. Uh, poor people get pushed out. Working people, the working poor, get pushed out. And eventually the middle class gets pushed out as well. I'll just quickly tell you the other perspective. So the perspective why they don't want us there and how they're trying to get us out through fines and other ways, is the other part of the perspective is my role in the organization. And the, the title of the organization is quite clear. Our mandate is quite clear. We are about lived experience. We are about serving people, advocating for people who don't have a voice. And so when I see the city of Kamloops working against the poor and the homeless, by not offering enough shelter space for them, enough resources, gentrification, whatever, it's my duty, it's my role as a spokesperson to call that out. And if there's one thing that our elected officials and senior staff, bureaucrats, do not like, it's being criticized. They will not tolerate it. So I've had a visit from a city councilor back in the summer of 2021 who falsely claimed that he was coming for a tour because he wanted to learn about our facility and our program to learn that he was the messenger uh being sent by the powers that be to let me know that they were going to get rid of me personally they were going to get rid of our organization they were going to shut this place down
0: starting with you at the head yeah work from the head down
1: yeah we don't want you here we want you gone we want this place gone. We want it shut down. And I said to him, uh, "You can go fuck yourself." And you were permanently banned. You were the first person that is permanently banned from our property and our facility.
0: <laughs> so, so in 2021, I note here. Uh, okay, you lost your funding. The city no longer funded you. Uh, they yeah. cut the. Uh, you had they forced you to cut your services and operation hours, well, because of the funding shortfall. Uh, you, they, the city suspended your organization's license for what reason? For for what you so, just said. So yeah, so
1: we have to we have to clarify now myth that you read. So what you're stating now is uh, urban folklore and myth, and then there's the fact.
0: Okay, so well, good. Is, so the over, urban folklore and myth is the stuff that, that that's out there, Glenn. So yes, I'm glad we brought it up because now I'd like to know what's the reality of that. Yeah, so
1: back in. Back in April of 2021, the executive director of the North Shore Business Improvement Association, who I've always known has been like a double agent, although he seems to be a friend of social services, uh, I know now that he just participates in the different committees and so on and roundtables to understand you know, what's going on and what our plans are as different agencies and programs so we can go back and report to the real estate developers uh, what's happening so that they can figure out how they can either put a stop to it or live with it or dilute it, right? So he comes to me one Saturday unannounced at our center and says, Glenn, I need your help. He said, I'm getting, I'm under so much pressure from my board members, from business owners. The homeless people are all over the place. Uh, they're behind businesses. They're pissing and shitting. There's garbage, blah, blah, blah. Um, can you help? And I said, well, what would you like us to do? He said, well, can you bring, try and do something to bring more people to the loop? And I said, well, sure. Yeah, We, if we had uh, the funding, we could do that. So with his support, we go to the city and we say to the city, listen, in a month or two, all of the people that are camping down by the rivers are going to have to leave because the rivers swell every year at that time. And there's no longer place for them to camp. And they're just going to be coming more into the the downtown core on both sides of the city. And so if we had the funding, we could open up, instead of five days a week, we could open up seven days a week. And instead of being open from nine till four every day, uh, five days a week, we can be open from nine o'clock in the morning till 10 at night. And the city says, sounds good, let's do it. And so on a pilot project basis, we get funding to extend our hours and days literally within and so this starts in the middle of may and is supposed to go into the middle of august the pilot project and then be renewed reviewed and then decided about renewal for funding or whatever so two weeks into this pilot project yeah we got double the number of people that are visiting our center we're going from 30 to 60 or to 80 people a day it's hot out we're still in COVID mode, right? So we have we only have the capacity for 20, even without COVID, our, our, our physical space inside has the capacity for, I think, 28 seats. And so I contact a friend of mine who runs a, a special events company, and he loans us a couple of tents that are installed in our parking lot, right? And our parking lot is private part of the property the city has no problem with uh, us putting tents up as long as they're not interfering with pedestrian or you know automobile traffic and so now you know we're able to accommodate we have these lovely tents with tables with flowers on them and hanging plants from the tent. it looks fantastic and so then two weeks or so three weeks into this pilot project the Business Improvement Association guy who is, you know, the one that came to us to ask us for help. he's The one, now, the one
0: that you banned?
1: What's that? Was that the same? No, pro? no, he's oh, no, not no. the one. No, the one that we banned is was a city councillor. No, this guy starts criticizing us in the media because he's getting pressure now, again, because there's so many people hanging out, right? The quote-unquote optics of the place, right? And so, yes, a lot of the people that we serve are people who are homeless and are using substances. And 90% of the people that use substances in Kamloops are smoking them. They're not injecting. So we have one safe injection site in Kamloops that is downtown that serves one person at a time and the rest are smoking. And there's no indoor inhalation site for drug users that are, whether they're homeless or have a house. And so, yes, you have although we don't condone it, so to speak, it's almost impossible to stop. I mean, short of just telling people, if we catch you, you know, using substances on the property, you will lose access to your your food and water. And and we don't want to do that.
0: That's not a solution anyway. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, the the minority of NIMBY's the haters, the ones that are the, you know, the the Kamloop's MAGA supporters here they they just start going ballistic on social media about the loop right the real estate developers you know and and then one day and this you'll probably find this in another media source one day in i think it's middle of july somewhere along there a guy shows up we've never seen him before he's not one of our guests for service big guy shows up bare chested no shirt on drunk eight o'clock in the morning with a baseball bat screaming That he is going to kill the homeless. And the homeless are waiting for us to open at nine o'clock, as they would normally do, like they do at any location that offers services. They get there before you open because they've got nowhere else to go. And that's where they're attached to and where they feel safe. And so here comes this guy swinging a baseball bat at the homeless community at eight o'clock in the morning at a dozen or so people. I'm not there yet. Our volunteer custodian happens to be inside the building getting us ready to open. And he hears all this commotion outside. He goes out, sees this guy. This guy sees the door open. He goes running inside, screaming that he's going to kill all of our staff for helping the homeless. And the city, oh, yeah, I'm, wait, there just happens to be somebody in our parking lot in their car filming all of this and live streaming it on Facebook. And the city sends one lowly bylaw officer to mitigate this problem that is happening during rush hour and spilling out onto the streets, until, you know where cars are going. By the end of the day, the mayor, who has hated our organization since the beginning because he doesn't like being criticized, his name, he's the former mayor. His name is Ken. Ironically enough, his last name is Christian, Ken Christian. Ken Christian holds a press conference declaring that The Loop has now had its business license revoked and is shut down. But I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of this. Uh, I had learned about this when this bylaw officer shows up at our door with nothing in hand except his message to me, his b- verbal message saying the mayor says your license is revoked and you shut down. And I said, that's nice. I said, you got a document like something, something formal that um, states this. I said, because if you don't, have a nice day. And that was the end of that. But of course, the media picks it up. I mean, we we are like the story in Kamloops. You know, we go from being an unknown factor to this like brand of, you know, everything that's wrong in Kamloops, especially by, you know, the haters and the NIMBYs. And so, yes, in fact, our business license has never been revoked, let alone even suspended, not even for a day. We've never been shut down. What the city asked us to do is the next day they call, a bureaucrat calls and says, Glenn, could you please do us a favor? And could you just take the tents down? Could you just like try and bring the people inside as much as possible? And we were like, all right, if that's going to like shut you up and leave us alone, yeah, we'll do that. And so that's what we did. But in the meantime, the the city slapped on our landlord because they can only do it to a property owner, not a tenant what they call the nuisance property and so to this day the property still has this nuisance property status on it and once you are designated a nuisance property you are susceptible to fines and so why do we get fines because according to the bylaw that states what a nuisance property means and what its implications are for the owner is that based totally on complaints but in our case um, use requests for use of And we're talking about emergency life-saving services here, Virginia. So we rarely call on them because we know how to deal with overdoses. We know how to deal with criminal behavior. You know, we know we we, and knowing that if we were to call, it could mean another fine for our landlord.
0: Or no response at all. Yeah.
1: And then, of course, you could also get fines for somebody complaining. So you and I and a thousand people, Virginia, can call the city. And say, the loop, that is a great place. It's amazing. Thank God we have that. And thank you so much for supporting them. And the city would be like, "Uh, oh, yeah, thanks for that call. Okay, have a nice day. See you later. One person said, I got a complaint against the loop. They're like, okay, hang on a second. Um, We got to open up a file here. Uh, Here's your file number. Can we have your name? And uh, what's your complaint? And what would you like done? And so the city works, our city works on a, a purely on a complaint based system.
0: Selective, so, yeah. selective yeah. Uh, input. Going back to the nuisance status, uh, I believe, didn't you ask them how long the status was going to remain on the property? And they said for life, however, That's right. a nuisance status is supposed to be reviewed every six months. But
1: right. Yeah. So some of this information came out in a recent investigative journal journalist piece. So there's a journalist in here who really sticking with this story and, and trying to help us yes when we had the first conversation with city officials and our landlord all on the phone at the same time she posed the question to them she said okay so you're giving me this nuisance property status how long is it for and how do i get rid of it and that was the answer uh sorry it's for life and she's like what how is that possible well according to the bylaw Once you have it on you, you always have to, you have it on you. You can do everything to do whatever it is uh, you can, what's required of you, so that we don't fine you, but we never take this off. And so that's a lie, we learned. And the review process is a real thing, but they've never offered it to us, and we were never
0: made aware of it. Now, do you have any legal counsel that volunteers services or will work pro bono on your behalf yeah, so because this yeah, is this we, is this is political.
1: Yeah, it's totally political.
0: And very selective and subjective.
1: Oh yeah. 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 And so I tried on a couple of occasions to find a lawyer that would take on the city has virtually every law firm in town hired for something or another because every law firm, you know, specializes in something or another. And so as I was calling one day one law firm to the next, and sometimes a lawyer would say, I'm sorry, there's a conflict of interest. I can't help you. You know, we have a relationship with the city. Try this law firm. Call them. Sorry, we can't help you. Every Everybody, same thing.
0: So they've sort of created their own in-house conflict of interest by spreading themselves to all the law firms.
1: Yeah, they've insulated themselves. They've insulated
0: from, themselves. Yeah. yeah.
1: So we do now, we are now consulting with a retired lawyer who is a big supporter of our current mayor. Our current mayor, and you should look this up to get some perspective as well, Reed Hamer Jackson is a populist that up until recently elected last November was just a car salesman right across the street from the original shelter in town. And Reed Hamer Jackson is, I don't want to say he's like Trump. But he kind of he kind of has that Trump like personality, you know, like whatever comes in your head comes out your mouth. But he's not a discriminatory racist person. He's a populist who thinks that our municipal government is broken. And he's the guy that is going to fix it. And so, oh, boy, he's like, in a he's in a fierce storm right now, because the senior bureaucrats who run our city are not used to a person like that. They're just doing, telling the mayor and city councillors what it is they want done and how they want it done, and then they want your vote. And that's how the city has always been run. And the city councillors, some of them that got reelected and even some of the new ones are not of the same spirit as him. They're more staying in their lane type and not interested in shaking up the system or stirring the pot. So they're really giving him a hard time. He's a big supporter of our organization.
0: So that's good.
1: Oh, yeah, it's good for us. Yeah. I mean, back in the beginning of November, when the city had promised that two of their facilities, two of their city-owned facilities would be opened and operated by a couple of different agencies to increase the number of shelter spaces, especially needed in the wintertime.
0: Was that the Parkview Activity Center in the yacht? Club? No. No.
1: That was the yeah the yacht, the yacht club, club and what's called the Stuart Wood School. They couldn't get it together. They that were... was due
0: to open November first in twenty twenty. of this past year, twenty twenty two. That's right. And it's still closed.
1: No, no, no. It opened. It okay. opened eight days late. But November first, we had an incredible blizzard, and for the next and for those those eight days or so leading up, finally opening up, we had horrific weather here. I mean, like life threatening weather including the blizzard and so the loop opened up the shelter we took in everybody that we could fit in and over the course of those eight days we went from 20 people to at the height of it we had 47 people in our building yeah and did the city try to close that down of course not
0: really so you no. had their support we, I was about... we did
1: not have their support
0: i was no, about to ask didn't. Did you ask no. permission or forgiveness on that one Neither. Neither.
1: We just did it. We knew if we asked, then there would be a record of that, and they would say no, and then it would be an obvious, blatant show of you know disrespect and civil disobedience on our part. And so our board just said, just open up and see what happens. Because if we don't create a space for people, there are going to be people dying out there, literally. Yeah, so on November 1st, when it was due to open, also just happened to be the the day that the new mayor and council were being sworn in and that was you know a big event at the university that you know that drew four or five hundred people and so i went to that event knowing that i would sit there as an audience member quietly applauding as necessary and then at the very end of it just as the mayor was about to say good night everyone and thank you for coming i stood up and i just said mr mayor and council It's unacceptable that you have failed our most vulnerable, at-risk people by not opening up the promised winter shelters, as you said. And we are in the midst of a blizzard and sub-freezing temperatures that are life-threatening for the next week at least. I'm imploring you, I'm demanding of you that you get to work on this tomorrow morning. But in the meantime, we're opening up shelter and have a good night.
0: You know, ironically, uh, Glenn, it it kind of um, perplexes me that in Kamloops that you're facing this sort of pushback or, you know, the people would rather ignore and shut down what is necessary than to have it than to have to see it. There was a fellow that just the other day, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you heard about him. His name is Ernest McPherson. He got the Queen's Jubilee Award in Sask- uh, Saskatoon, actually. They brought him. It was from, he's from Saskatchewan. But um, uh, somebody from the community brought him to get this award for doing that very same thing. He got this award, the Queen's Jubilee Award, for doing the same thing that you've done. He uh, he was homeless he, I guess, bootstrapped it up, got himself a little trailer, and then he went around. And during that same period of time, I guess, went around and gathered the homeless and helped them out, got them off the streets into uh, into a shelter. And uh, during this deep freeze, and they honored him with this Queen's mm-hmm. Jubilee Award. That's correct. Ironically, yeah. ironically, the same. And this was just this week, Monday or Tuesday. Ironically, uh, when they got back home to uh, wherever that area was, actually it's called Meadow Lake. His house was burned down. His trailer was oh. burned down. Now he finds himself in the same shelter with the same people that he helped get off the streets during the during that deep uh, freeze. So it, it's it's ironic, but at the same point, at the same time, the, you're facing adversity. You're facing fines and threats. And as a matter of fact, I want to circle back around to something that happened to you in February of 2022, I believe it was. So that was just last year. Uh, you had an incident, I believe, with, with someone that had some mental challenges. You want to talk about that?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, that was that was a first in a lifetime and hopefully last in a lifetime Let's hope. experience for me. But yeah, yeah it was just a Regular kind of winter morning at the we which opened up, we had a dozen or so people coming in for breakfast. Everybody's sitting down quietly, eating their oatmeal and their, their egg salad sandwiches and peanut butter and jam sandwiches. And, and then this guy that we had seen before, and I had also seen him out on the streets when, when I was doing the COVID meal train, Meals on Wheels program, he just jumps up and starts screaming and throwing his plates against the wall and it's just you know just throwing objects all over the place and yelling at me saying that his parents had given me 2 million dollars of his inheritance and that our van that we use for a meals and wheels program that he was aware of belongs to him and he wants the money and the keys to the van right now and the next thing i know he comes running at me You know, my first impulse, my training is to, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Deescalate, right?
0: Deescalate, diffuse, yeah.
1: Right, through talking. And this is a big guy and he's in his early 30s, and he's about 6'4", and, you know, a couple of hundred pounds at least. And before I know it, I get punched in the face. And it was shocking to me. I didn't knock me down or knock me out, but I certainly was like, whoa, like we're on a whole other level here. Fortunately, the other people that were in the center got hold of him and and got him out of the building yes i called the cops because you know this was a serious uh event other volunteers in our building at the time uh, the people in the building at the time and he's still out in the parking lot the door is locked and so yeah i called the cops and by the time they come he's already left the property and we're not quite sure what direction he's gone in about a half an hour passes When I go, I have to go to get something out of the van, I look out the small window that we have at our door just to check to see if he's out in the parking lot. I don't see him. And just as I open up the door, it turns out that he is approaching the door and he's got his handle on the outside portion of the door and I got the handle on the inside and we are now in a tug of war and he is still livid with these proclamations about his inheritance and the keys to the van and but now he's even more incensed and saying things like he's going to slip my throat and cut out my heart i can't let him he wants to come in i cannot let him in and i can't get the door closed and so i let go of the door and now we're both standing in the door frame as I'm trying to talk him down, I realize that as I, I've, I've extended my left, my left arm as a gesture, just in, you know, in expressing myself, saying to him, Richard, listen, let, let, let's try and figure this out. When all of a sudden he takes his left hand and I don't see it at first, but I feel it in my arm that I've just been punctured. And then when I look down at his hand, I see a very small, like, paring knife, you know with a blade of maybe, I don't know, three inches. You know what I'm talking about. A very small knife that you would cut the skin off an apple with, right? But still, I realize, and fortunately, I'm wearing a lot of layers, and I have my coat on at this point anyway, because I was about to go out. But I realized, like, yeah, I've been, this has hit my skin, and i got no idea what's going on underneath all my layers. Anyway, at that moment, for some reason, out of the blue, I say to him, Richard, listen, let me just go to our safe and get all your money and your car keys and I'll be right back. And at that moment, he just like stops at me, like tilts his head, like as he's listening, like to this message and kind of steps back from the door for a second. And I reach and I slam the door shut and lock it. So I'm inside, he's outside, he's banging on the door. I tell all the people that are inside, you gotta stay inside until this gets resolved. We're calling the police again, which, had already happened by one of the volunteers he's out in the parking lot i go out the back door of our building and i go around to the front where i know he is in the parking lot and i just kind of wave at him it's almost like um did you see jurassic park i did it's when jeff goldblum is waving at the tyrannosaurus rex with the flare in his hand yes, to get the attention absolutely. so he doesn't eat the kids i'm trying richard over here over here And I'm standing on one side of our van and he's on the other. And we have this cat and mouse game going on around the van as I'm waiting for the cops to come. And he gets frustrated and loses interest and runs down the street away from the center. The cops come and I say he's gone in that direction. I say to one of the policemen, I'm going to get in the van and look for him, too, because I think I may know where he's gone. And anyway, five minutes later, I do see him. He sees me in the van and he starts running after the van. I'm calling the police. I'm saying I'm at this intersection. He's pursuing the van. I'm turning this corner. He's still in pursuit. And then within seconds, they're all there. Then I see this poor guy, you know, like six cop cars. They're yelling at him, you know, get your hands out of your pockets and get down on your knees, put your hands in the air. So, on. you know, they're just repeating this over and over to this man who's in total psychosis. And he's just staring at them, and he takes one step toward them. And I see him grab his chest, and I my first thought is, oh, my God, they just shot him. They, they just, they're killing him. But it, they tase him. But I'd never seen that before, right? So I didn't even see the taser thingy going at his chest. Yeah, and I could see him crumple to the ground. So my wound, minimal. I call it a puncture, you know, that's... It it looked like a small pimple on my arm. Uh, You know, was blood gushing out? No. Was I traumatized? Totally. Do I have PTSD? Definitely.
0: We'll be right back with more of something to talk about and today's guest, Glenn Hilkey.
1: Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island.
0: Whether you're near or far, take us along with you and download the free app and bring us along on Podbean and Spotify, Island Waves.
1: Be sure to tune in to Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island.
0: Island Waves can now be heard worldwide on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Alexa, Google, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Audible, Player FM, Deezer, and Boomplay. Be sure to take us along wherever you go. Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. And we're back with today's guest, Glenn Hilke. Has this deterred you from continuing? No. (coughs) No. Now, just, a, just a war wound. <laughs> there
1: you go. Yeah, a war wound for a conscientious objector. Well, there you go. That,
0: that, full tilt. What happened to the? What happened to that gentleman? Did you ever get any follow up? And then oh, I, oh yeah, I
1: was completely involved. So. You know, the police come, they've got him in custody. They, you know, they come to the center immediately. They want to do a full report for me. You know, the paramedics are there asking me if I want to go to the hospital. I'm like, no, it's okay. You know, let's just need a regular Band-Aid, thank you. And I say to the police officer, you know, the main lead in this, I say, you know, the guy is out of his mind. I said, he needs help. And they said to me, if you don't press charges, he is not, there's no possibility of him getting any help. You have to press charges. Then from there, you can talk to the prosecutor, defense attorneys, and, you know, tell them what your wishes are. But if you don't press charges, my friend, this guy is out this evening. And so, yeah, I pressed charges. And the charges were... I, the cops called it assault with a weapon and carjacking, I think they called it. What happened was I, I worked with the prosecutors. I uh, They said, OK, so what we're going to do is we're going to keep him in remand, which kept him incarcerated. We're going to require that the judge dictate to him that he has to get a psychiatric evaluation because he would not be fit to stand trial until he had a psychiatric evaluation and so over the course of a couple of months that's what happened he left kamloops he went to coquitlam or chilliwack to some other facility they did a psychiatric evaluation they did another one. He had court hearings. One judge said they would ask him if he was fit for trial. He would respond, but he would say crazy shit. And the judge realized, "Now oh, you're not fit for trial yet. They would give him medication. Then they finally decided that he was fit for trial. And so he wound up pleading guilty. And the conditions were he didn't have to serve. Maybe he had to serve an additional 30 days, but for time already served, they let him. They counted that. Uh, so he was incarcerated
0: back. in the in the interim or he was hospitalized? He,
1: Yeah, no. He well, a combination of both. Yeah, for the remaining thirty days, he's in a regular incarceration facility, and his conditions for release and probation are: he cannot go anywhere near me. He cannot come anywhere near uh, the loop. He has never done. um, He's never come. Tried to come to the loop. I have seen him on two occasions. One was when I was bringing people to a warming center during the winter. Yeah, just this past, just this winter, a few months ago, and he was sitting in the lobby, and that was like, whoa, like the PTSD just rolled right over me. He didn't see me, but I just said to the workers, I said, uh, I can't come in. I said, I'll, I'll bring you these folks that need warming, but uh, I can't come in right now. I've seen him on the street a couple of times, and then a, a woman that I know that's a manager at a local Starbucks told me that he came in to their Starbucks about a month ago in just... Pajama bottoms with no shirt and no shoes on, uh, threatening staff with a knife. So he's still in terrible shape. Yeah, he's been arrested multiple times for different things. Yeah, he's still in that same psychotic space.
0: So I guess the question I I that comes to my mind is, incarceration isn't the answer. This man needs mental health help. And so I guess the question I have for you is, what is the Canadian Mental Health Association doing to assist you or be part of? I know at one point they were supposed to be involved with one of the shelters and then they pulled That's correct. out. So, yeah.
1: so historically, and I don't know how far back this goes, the Canadian Mental Health Association chapter of Kamloops, they are and still are today the sole permanent shelter operator. So when I arrived in 2012, they just had one shelter. In the last year and a half, they have opened up two other shelters. One is the former Greyhound bus terminal that left town. That is now another 50-bed shelter. And then they opened up what they call a transition, how, a transition something. It's not like there are other two shelters where just for anybody, you have, your behavior has to be impeccable. Like you have to prove yourself in other shel- in one of their other shelters before you get into this space. When one of the two agencies that was supposed to operate one of the two uh, additional winter shelters, Yacht Club and Stuart Wood School, was not able to because they did not have the capacity to run a 24-7 shelter model, which these two winter shelters were supposed to be, they turned to the Canadian Mental Health Association and asked them, to if they would run it, because it needed to get, find an operator ASAP. And they certainly weren't gonna, gonna give it to the loop to operate, even at at one of those two facilities. The city would not do that. They would why, not. Why not? Because it's me, Virginia. They would, not, they would not do that because it would just be so, I don't know, contradictory or-
0: To anti- their narrative, perhaps?
1: Yeah, yeah, to their narrative, yeah. But at the same time, our mayor, our present mayor, He had already been speaking out in public uh, during his campaign about his lack of confidence in Canadian Mental Health Association to operate shelters professionally and effectively. And he's right. They have serious staffing, policy, protocol, procedure problems, serious ones. But they're huge, and they're the only one that's ever been. So the mayor has been quite public about this, about him wanting... To have an audit done about Canadian Mental Health Association's performance as a shelter operator. So when it came time for the city, with its new mayor critical of CMHA, to say, "Would you guys mind doing us a favor and running this shelter?" They said, "No, thank you." So, yeah they they got they got flack for that, and they still do. They but said they said got away
0: to- with it. They got yeah, away they with said saying that, it
1: that had nothing to do with the mayor. They said it had more to do with their lack of capacity and that they weren't happy with the shelter model that they're already in to begin with. But So another group called Out of the Cold is running it, but not as a 24-7 shelter. So the Yacht Club is 24-7, but it's only for 20 people. And if those same 20 people want to stay there all winter, as long as they get back by 9 p.m., which is their curfew, their bed is reserved for them hundreds and hundreds of people need shelter in kamloops the yacht club is for 20 and it could be for the like they said the same 20 all winter long the out of the cold program refused that model of in their case 25 beds for the same 25 they said that makes no sense they said number one people are so transient that you'll never get the same 25 they will miss their curfew We don't want all of this conflict. We're just going to serve people on a first-come, 1st serve basis. There'll be a lineup every night, but at least we're serving more people in essence. So listen to this, Virginia. This is crazy, but it's true. And it's something that is going to shock the Kamloops public when they hear about it fairly soon. They've been keeping accurate records of every unique individual that's just come through their particular winter shelter-only doors since they opened November the 8th. She texted me, Renee, the executive director of Radical, texted me yesterday saying that they just surpassed the 500 person mark. Unique individuals. And and for a while, for the first two months that they were operating, just until the New Year's, they had a policy that they would not turn away anybody even after the 25 beds were full. And so at times they had 60 people in their building, 35 of whom didn't have a bed. It was like they were running two and a half winter shelters and it just became too much for them and they just had to stop you know doing this extra warming space and so yeah it's it's unfortunate but uh, i mean the, the the number of shelter spaces that were lacking is just incredible
0: so going back to the loop if you were given the opportunity to have that extended to you where it became a a full service facility including it being a shelter whether 24 seven or however the model was appropriate, would you do it if if you had that opportunity?
1: It's a good question. I mean, I've had the experience of running overnight shelters. It's hard work.
0: It's very hard work and And, challenging. How does your family put up with it? Are they supportive, your wife and your children?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, they are, yeah. My wife is, is sometimes reaching her limits as soon because I'm not making a whole lot of money doing this fortunately she has a very good paying job my kids are used to it i mean even, even my older kids you know they gr- they grew up in the in the not for profit activist world and as did julian when he got here and he met harold so part of his homeschooling was you know helping the homeless but i would the answer to the question would be yes so if the funding was there and the we had the staff and the right staff definitely we would do it
0: would you be in that same location in that North Shore district? Uh, what did you call it? The Truncheal Market Corridor?
1: Yeah, yeah, the Truncheal Market Corridor,
0: yeah. You know, Glenn, back in the 80s, I uh, was living in Athens, Georgia, and in the business community, and became involved with a task force for the homeless. I think we were divided into two groups. I know for us, we were coming up with a model plan of what worked. And I worked with a lot of bankers and businessmen in the community and heads of different organizations, including people that were had worked with homeless and mental health uh, professionals. And we came up with a model that talked about taking an urban city building, uh, a vacant one, which, you know, there's always something available, maybe a five-story, six-story building, have it, have the ground floor, you know, maybe an old store or something, have the ground floor serve as a as a homeless shelter, as a place for people that they can come to eat or sleep. But part of that building would also have services. What we found was that when people were either homeless or in need of food or in need of uh, some sort of subsidy to their lives for whatever reason, you know, that they weren't drawing unemployment, that they weren't eligible for, for working, they were on their down and out that they needed counseling. They needed mental health counseling. They needed skills counseling. They needed career counseling. So we came up with this model plan where if they came in and they stayed, you know, the first X amount of time, they were helped. And then after a certain amount of time, you know, they're going through the different departments to get the, get either skill sets or to get the mental health or or the counseling that they need. And then part of that is making them responsible for putting back. So maybe part of their job is to help others or to to make meals or or to give out food. We came to the city with um, with this very idealistic laundry list of what we could do. And the pushback that we got was that they did not recognize that there was a homelessness issue. And my response was, until you're walking over them in the street and you realize that they too are people that are there, this is gonna continue and it's only gonna get worse. Of course, I don't know what the end result is today. I do know that they do have a, a, you know, as with any community, there's a large homeless uh, community factor. Here in PEI, we had a situation, I don't know if you've been familiar with it, the fairgrounds that that they've developed here in the downtown core, as a matter of fact, as you drive into Charlottetown, they're right there and for i would say the better part of 2 years it became an encampment for homeless and so the province made an, an attempt to buy these um, modular homes and put them on a property that the city owns and they encouraged people to that were living in this encampment to uh to move into these homes well i'd say 50% of them did and again it's not that it's not a home like you would think oh this is my home I'll I might stay in until 10 o'clock in the morning. No, they have to be out by a certain time of day, and they're only allowed in at a certain time at night. So I guess in a way, it's like individual shelters for people, these modular modular buildings. But a good portion of them did not want to leave. So then the city went through various levels of of dispersing them. Uh, But my point is, is they're addressing it for better, for worse. The same thing with the food insecurity or food securities issue. They're doing their part, and some say just scratching the surface, but they just launched an island-wide food securities program in the local towns, uh, at the local town halls, to for people to come and, and meet and, and eat. And it's not that they have to be homeless or down on the route. It, they're just inviting people to do it, kind of what we did actually just recently with Hurricane Fiona when it hit here. And then there's a seniors initiative that they're doing, a pilot project to provide food for for meals, uh, kind of a meals on wheels, if you will. But they've gotten four of the local restaurants to participate by providing meals for seniors for $4 a dinner. Do you see anything like that going on where you are?
1: So to go to back to your Athens experience, you know, you refer to it as idealistic. I would say that that was realistic.
0: It was very, very realistic. Very yes. Rational,
1: logical thinking, effective, you know, strategy that doesn't exist in Kamloops. So there's too much silo work that goes on. I think, you know, part of the city's stranglehold is a kind of a divide and conquer strategy where they favor certain organizations over others. Those organizations will not bite the hand that feeds them and so on. And it all stays, you know, neatly wrapped uh, the way the city likes to see it. So, yeah, we need a hub. Right now, different agencies do different things. So I've always referred to a homeless person or an addicted person getting well in Kamloops and getting assistance to, let's just say, yeah, get well, reintegrate, however they may, into the community and, and participate once again in the community as an Olympic sport. It's like it, it would be almost like if a homeless person would sign on to to be in the decathlon, right? Not only do you have to be good at one type of sport activity, you got to be good at all ten of them. And so you got to go one place for this type of service, another place for another one get an appointment for that one. A exactly. referral is insane.
0: Well, that was the point. And that was, I guess that was something that I was very vocal about is that you're handicapping these people. Sure. These services exist. Uh, you can go here for this. You can go there for that, but they don't realize that this person may not have the transportation. And so they get discouraged. And so it's a cyclical event. The whole idea was not to keep people that had the ability to, you know, to to bootstrap it up and, and maybe go forward. And it's not for everybody. Some people have challenges that this model might not deal with. But they wouldn't be cast aside, they wouldn't be left aside, and they wouldn't be hogtied and handicapped to be able to try to get to maybe that agency. When I say idealistic, it, it was a bit idealistic. And quite frankly, it got shot down, not so much by the mayor and the council, but by the same bankers and business people that were sitting on our committee uh they they thought we had rosy colored glasses you know hippies from the 60s i guess with their idealism but the fact right. is is something like this could actually work the people come in they want to they, they they want to feel good about themselves they want to feel productive not all but i'd say a good portion of them do and how best then to get them feeling like okay once once you've got the clothes once you're warm once you've got food in your belly now how about sit here and Maybe take, do intake or learn how to answer the phone or, you know, in other words, get them feeling productive before they have to go out on it. You can't just throw somebody, oh, go do a job interview. You have right. to get them to that point mentally, physically, spiritually, on emotionally. If, if somebody is in that position, it's not because they just won the lottery. They didn't walk away from a life of luxury. They're struggling And you compound it by making it difficult for them to get the help that they need. But say la vie.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and the other part of it is that makes it complex for them, not just logistically, to connect, is that the majority of people are living trauma. And whether that's childhood trauma or something recent, that is also getting in the way and making, you know, the... uh, the challenge of 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 connecting and staying connected people are not thinking and looking at this from what you call a a trauma informed lens right so whether we're talking about indigenous people who were still suffering from multi-generational trauma because of what happened to their parents or grandparents in residential schools to you know people who were born addicted and so on and so forth so yeah and so, you know, I would say that almost everything that is needed in that that kind of hub model that you and I are talking about exists in CAMloops right now, with the exception of a safe supply for drug users that doesn't exist in CAMloops right now. But everything else pretty much exists. But it's all over the place, and it's not clear, even to those of us that work in the fields, who's doing what, where it's happening, what the schedule is, is this a pilot project, is it funded, where is it happening, and so on.
0: So you can imagine, if it's daunting to you, how impossible it is for those that need it.
1: Yeah, right. And so where we're at today is at the Loop facility is that when we first rented the building in 2019, as I said, we didn't have the funding to rent the whole building, although it was vacant. And so we rented half of the building and we continued like that throughout the first three years of our lease that just ended last December. But during the three year, first three-year lease, we had some pilot project funding and the, and the other side of the building was empty at the time. And a landlord allowed us to go into that side of the building for six months to try out a pilot project, which was kind of the very beginnings of a hub-based concept. So the loop would close at four o'clock, and at five o'clock, the other side of the building would open up and stay open until 10 at night. And it would have nothing to do with food, but everything to do with conversations. And the reason we stayed open until 10 o'clock was because the shelters had their curfews end at 9 30 and so by 10 o'clock we would know if there was any shelter beds available and so we had people in the building that had already expressed to us yes i'm interested in getting into shelter and they would say okay so stay here or stay close by or if you're going to leave, check back in just before ten, and we will let you know if there's space available. And if there's space available, we will bring you there. And so we did that for six months, and it also helped people to connect to other services, right, and and develop relationships that you know we couldn't necessarily develop with them during loop hours because you know we were too busy cooking, cleaning, washing dishes, and so on. But even at the loop, uh, and because we are. The smallest organization in town doing this, and we have the least amount of bureaucracy, that we are the most effective in terms of what I refer to as rapid action intervention and navigation. So literally, you come into the Loop, Virginia, and you say, I need help getting my ID. I lost my ID. I'd say to them, okay, uh, have you talked to any other agencies about this Yeah, But um, I, be, I got an appointment for next week, or I got an appointment for two days from now, but I really need my ID because I'm having trouble with my bank, and if I don't get my ID, and on and on and on. And so literally, we just say to them, okay, well, would you like to go right now? Let's go. Jump in the van. We'll take you over to the courthouse. Let's start the process. And so we do that with everything. We bring them down there, right? Emergency room housing appointments whatever like we're that flexible and that small that we can do that So
0: you are providing full services
1: one time or another in one way or another where we are the hub
0: you've been listening to something to talk about join us again In our next episode, as we journey with Glenn Hilke, as he lands firmly on his feet with his family in Kamloops, BC, and enters a whole new phase in his life, which will take him into social activism, food insecurities, addictions, homelessness, many other social issues, and even a brief foray into politics. I'm Virginia Winter for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. Something to Talk About is a door-in-the-floor production in association with Winterloot Studios for Island Waves. The Voice of Prince Edward Island, Executive Producer and Creator Virginia Winter, Research Contributions by Brittany Williams, Tracy Law, and Helen Balms, Audio Technical and Director Assistance Brittany Williams, Post Production Winterlude Studios, Prince Edward Island master editing virginia winter the producers would like to acknowledge and thank all of our participants of our series something to talk about who generously gave their time to be interviewed and share their lives with us and to holland college school of journalism and mass communications particularly to Brittany williams and to Lindsay carroll Special gratitude of thanks and appreciation to our technical guru and advisor, Dr. Watson Ohms, and to Millie, our loyal canine companion and moral support. Something to Talk About is a door-in-the-floor Winterlude Studio production made possible with support from Prince Edward Island Senior Secretariat and the Winter Foundation for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward. Edward Ireland